Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. We're so glad that you're here and glad that you came to take part in this service on this Father's Day. How many of you have honored your fathers today in some way or another? Looking at my crowd over here, yes. Ashley has promised that the card is on its way, and that's a good thing. Uh, I, I, you know, dads, I don't think we look for much honor. We're just glad to get through the day. We're kind of like reptiles, you know. We just sort of just get out and get in it. We, we just, but I'll tell you, it's wonderful to have your family. It's wonderful to be with your family. If your father is not alive, you can sit today and you think about him, especially if you had a good dad. You can think about that dad and the things that he added to your life and the ways that he led you in your life and even uh, to be able to learn from his mistakes sometimes is a wonderful thing. But we all have that heavenly father, that father in heaven who speaks to our hearts. And uh, I tell you, we want him to be present today. We came here to worship him. And John, I don't even know if we introduced you or not. I was asleep in some of the service uh, when you were talking, uh, JJ, and that's what he does when I preach. Did you introduce John? You did. Well, wonderful. Uh, but that's John uh, Smith from Texas. That's an old joke. That's actually John, and he's come, he came to lead us today. And thank you, brother. Thank you so much for leading in this service today. How many are glad to be here today rather than the best hospital in the state of Kentucky? Yeah, I'll tell you, isn't it wonderful? That's an old joke, too. But I'll tell you what, it's good to be in the Lord's house. It's good to be here. Now, I know Brother Greg's not here. Brother Erdie's not here. Brother Erdie's away on sabbatical for this next uh, month. And uh, JJ and I are going to do the best we can on Sunday morning. Brother Greg's gone this morning. His daughter was married yesterday, so he and Felicia are gone. I jokingly said to him, I completely understand, Greg, that you won't be there that morning. Uh, he's drunk and probably has a hangover this morning. And they, he and Felicia can't get to church. No, you know if you've had a wedding, some of you have already said, it takes a lot out of you and they may have been not home till three o'clock in the morning, not because they were at a big party. They may have been cleaning up. A lot of things had to happen. We're just glad they had a wonderful day and uh, I'm sure they had a wonderful wedding. It is so uh, good to be here with you this morning. I wanna do as is our uh, custom uh, when we preach. I want you to stand with me. Stand with me, will you? Let's stand together. We're gonna to hear God's word this morning, I pray. And I want you to pray we hear God's word. I don't stand above you, I stand with you. I stand with you to proclaim God's word. And we all stand before, not a man, not an altar, but we stand before the presence of God to ask the Lord to somehow, despite this stumbling speak and speech and speaker, to somehow that the Lord may speak to our hearts. Let's pray together and ask God to do just that. Father, we come before you humbly. We come before you standing in your grace and whatever our preparation and whatever words we may speak today, 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that we may speak from your grace and from your power. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that this message may be a word unto me and a word unto your people. And the word, Lord, to people who join this morning through the media. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is in this place to carry us along. Speak to our hearts. What more can we ask other than that you might give us faith to be obedient unto you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we want to talk about principles. We want to talk about some things from God's Word that remind us of principles about what we're to be doing and what we ought to be doing and who, what God expects from us. I know of a lot of good places to start, but uh, we want to look in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter and verses 1 through 9 and then 16 through 25. So let's just read that text together, if we will. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen to be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then if we skip to uh, the, the 16th verse, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at uh, Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has spoken. So when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and statues and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed uh, moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I read that passage this morning to say to you that it's my belief, and I don't mean to be exclusive of women here this morning, that's not my particular view, but 
I, I speak to men and to fathers today, and I say it is my belief when I read the scripture that the primary role of leading the home, and I know we have many broken homes, I'm not talking about single mothers of grace in the world to you, but I'm saying to fathers today in your home and with your children, I think God expects men to lead and be the spiritual leaders in the home. I'm not talking about being the boss, being the tyrant. I'm talking about men by their presence and by who they are to lead their children and for their children to know my dad did these things in this home and set that standard and they may very well say and my mother also but so many men stand and say who've grown up in a home my mother led us and did for us I'm saying to you men God has commanded you to be the leader in your home that doesn't mean your wife's not a leader <laughs> that doesn't mean that your wife doesn't lead the kids what it does mean and what I'm saying quite plainly is unfortunately in our society and in our churches it is women who are leading the children and the men are not that's plainly it and it shows I want to tell you and I weigh my words carefully here the impact that fathers have on their children is measurable I did not say immeasurable. It is measurable. The impact that a father has upon their child is measurable. All you have to do is scan the literature. And you'll find a lot of talk and a lot of studies that have gone on for many years. Separate yourself from the people who want to mix that with politics and uh, you get all kinds of arguments. But when you follow those and read those scholastic studies which people have done you know, regardless of their political perspective you find that it is a measurable dynamic that children who are raised without the influence of their fathers now it can be a grandfather it can be other people in their life it can be a stepfather but people uh, children who are raised without uh, the influence and leadership of a father much less a Christian father or a Christian home Children who are raised that way, there is a measurable dynamic in which they suffer. Now, if you mix that with poverty, which also has to do a lot with men abandoning their families for one reason or another, and always that plunges the family, not always, almost always, that plunges the family into poverty. And when you mix the fact that a woman is trying to make the living, she's trying to do everything that can be done and lead her family, and there's no influence of a father except an abandoned one, an absent one, one who's angry or doesn't care, you find that the statistics go way up that that child suffers from the lack of leadership of a father. It is measurable. But I don't have much hope this morning that that particular father is listening to the broadcast today or is even in this service today. I'm speaking to myself. I stood down there and said, I stand before the word of God. I'll be 70 years old this year and I look back upon my adult child and adult stepchildren in my life and I look and think about the influence of myself and of Dale on their lives and I can see where I have failed. I should have been a better leader 
And if you talk to my daughter this morning, she'll brag me up. I'll look like the greatest thing in the world. Oh, daddy, you did this. Oh, that Ashley, she gets started on the time we've been together. Oh, you know, about 15 years. Oh, I'll tell you what you mean to me. Listen, when I think about what it is in this passage that God is saying, I'll tell you what I think. Every man that stands before God can say, I see where I did not take the role I should have taken in my children's life and you can say it made a measurable difference in their life. I wish I would have been more attentive. And go ahead and listen to Ashley and go ahead and listen to Tiffany because they think I'm a pretty good guy most of the time. Until you cross them, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but that's my point. A man has to cross, be crossways with his children many times if you're going to lead. Doesn't mean you're always right, Dad. Sometimes they're right. But you need to assert yourself as a leader and more importantly as an example. The only thing worse than a dad who's not there is a dad who's there but he's an abusive monster or a father who is a, a, a cunning emotional narcissist who spews poison to his children's brain. The effects of those fathers absolutely sicken society. And the testimony of the children of those fathers is a pain to our soul to hear. God understands our situation. And he has spoken to it from the very founding, not only of the family, in Genesis, but of the establishment of his people, Israel. He has made provision that our children and our grandchildren would be affected by our testimony, by our witness, and by our teaching. And the effect would be that our children and our grandchildren would look and say, this is what my dad taught me as we went out, as we went in, this is what he wrote upon the doorpost. This is my father's life. This is the standard which I have been taught. Verse 6 says, and it catches me when I read this passage, my statutes are to be on your heart. This is not an emotional foo-foo thing. This is not your heart expressing itself as you listen to Bill Gaither and uh, the Gaither people saying and all of that, oh, I can get cry-eyed, I tell you what, I can get my hand in the air, I can do a lot. And I'm not saying that's not worship. I'm saying we're not talking about emotionalism. When the Bible says and God says to men, and he was particularly talking to the men of Israel, I want my statutes to be on your heart, he was talking about the fact that the very central processor of your mind, the heart, the idea of a Hebrew heart, wasn't the emotional, I lost my heart in San Francisco. It is the heart, the central processing unit of a man's life has programming in it that tells that mind how to work. It tells that mind how to make decision. It tells the very soul of that mind, of that man, the direction they ought to be heading. And God says, I want my statutes on your heart. I want 
the program from the BIOS of that computer to the operating system of that computer. I want it to be my statutes that are there so that whatever operation you do, whether you go in and you come out, whatever you're doing when you build your house, whatever thing you put there, you put there my statutes. And when your son, and of course your daughter, asked a question, so what are we? And why are we? In modern terms in the New Testament church, you tell them about what it means to be saved and you're able to give your own testimony. I once was lost. I was in Egypt land. I was in slavery. But I was found. And this is how it happened. And what you see of anything good in my life, you testify to those children. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross of Calvary and the presence of his Holy Spirit in my life. Your dad fails sometimes and sometimes I fail miserably and you won't understand that until you get a little older. But let me tell you why I make the decisions I make. It's because of Jesus Christ in my heart. He is my Lord and he is my master. That's what it means to say my statutes are written up on your heart it's not good enough to say well you know I believe well you know my kids know I like this and that I listen to the right country music songs let me tell you something someday I'm, I say this I think every time I preach to you some of these days I'm going to preach a sermon on the gospel according to country music some of it's great I'm going to read you a little poem in a little while about the gospel and country music but it, it, that's not the context but the gospel is all wrong in it. What it did in my life when my dad quoted it to me was different. We'll get to that in just a moment. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is God expects the foundation of our life in Christ to be taught to our children. Let me say one thing about that in this day. Just one piece of advice. It's a piece of advice that I think I, I don't think I've followed enough uh, in my being a father to my kids. Men, dads, grandpas, don't turn the job of being the disciplinarian over to your wife. Now, I know what you're going to say. It's what I said. Man, I can't get there fast enough. She's on them. And mama is on them. She's right there in the house. She goes in and sees that mess on the floor. She sees what's happening. She sees her Bible tossed around somewhere. She sees something. And I'll tell you what, a godly woman will speak up. But too often what we do is uh, sit there. We're not there by her side to say, this is the statutes of the Lord. This is how we live in this house. This is what we do. Men, I'm telling you, because you're a man, and there is a difference between a man and a woman. I realize that some men are on this way on the scale and some women are this way on the scale and some women in terms of their authority and their bearing, they approach more what a man would be. I understand that it's a sliding scale. I understand that that's what happens, but I'm going to tell you in every case, a man is a man, a woman is a woman. And I'm not talking politically here. I'm talking about how God made us and man has by his presence a certain authority in his home. I don't mean, I'll tell you what it's going to be. I don't mean that. 
I'm talking about a quiet authority. I've said this before, I think, when I preached on Father's Day. There is a power that is quiet and powerful. Go stand by the Ohio River at Owensboro. Go down on that piling there in back of the hotel and stand as close as you can on those concrete pilings and stand there without a lot of noise around you. You can kind of go down below and listen to the river. You say, I didn't know you could hear a river. You can hear a river move by. And you hear it move and you see it move. And you look across about a mile or three quarters of a mile there and you see that river moving. There is a power in that moving stream. If you block that power up, you can create hydroelectricity. If you put it behind a dam, you can run a mill, you can do work with it. There is great power in that river. A man's presence in the home who is full of the Holy Spirit has that kind of power when he arrives to be able to speak and to do. There is a calming influence when a man is a great disciplinarian in his home. The Bible says in, 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 uh, in Psalms, the 23rd Psalms, even though in the fourth verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now I know that's not about a dad, but it's about sheep who are under the authority of a shepherd. And the same is true in your home. Your children, your wife will appreciate the fact that you have the rod and the staff in the home. And the rod and the staff was there to discipline and to guide sheep and to move them into the path. When they walked through the valley of the shadow of death, the path was this wide, this thing was deep, and the shepherd took the, the staff and he moved them around. He moved them where they needed to be. Ship, uh, sheep can't see very well. And the shepherd would discipline them. He didn't stand there with a whip and whip them around. He disciplined them. He moved them over. Sometimes he got them by the neck and moved them over. Sometimes he had to lift them out. That's what a father does. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Study after study says that what teenagers want most is some rules. What teenagers want most is guidance. It didn't say they wouldn't push against it. They should because... In a little while, they're going to establish their own life and their own values, and that's what being a teenager is all about. <clears throat> you can't stay at mom and daddy's house all the time. Mom and daddy needs to be training you to get out, do your own thing, have your own job, your own family, and support yourself. A dad is most suited to put a child into that particular place. But everybody feels safer if they have some discipline. I'm telling you, men make a difference. I sit, I do it now in my own home. Cindy's up trying to do things and she's trying to have arguments with people and sometimes it stops when she says, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna get your grandpa in here or I'll tell you what, I'm gonna turn this over to Mike and she says, when that happens, everything straightens out and every once in a while I have to get out and say, listen, let me tell you something, how this is gonna be. A man's present makes a difference. Out of Temple Hill Baptist Church, we had Bible school and we had a group of about 10 to 12-year-old boys, and I'm going to tell you what, it was a rough bunch. Now, they weren't there most Sundays, but they were there. They were the wild bunch. They were coming during Bible school, and, uh, you know, the women mainly was working in Bible school, and they said, I don't know what we're going to do with this bunch. I'll tell you, it's a wild bunch. They were a wild bunch. I know they were 10 to 12 years old, but let me tell you something. If they'd have had their way, they would have showed up on Harleys to Bible school. And they would have had grown women with tattoos with them. I'll tell you what, they were a rough bunch. 
And the women said, I'll tell you what, I don't think we're going to be able to have Bible school when these people show up. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how many of you know Charles Crabtree. Charles Crabtree was a great guy. He was a deacon. He taught Sunday school. He taught church training. Charles Crabtree would sit in church and you would think he was Jeff Dunham's character, Walter. You hardly ever see him smile in time of church. He never sang a song. But let me tell you about Charles Crabtree. He was a man's man. He loved missions. He wanted the church to do missions. He went on mission trips himself. Charles wanted to see people saved. That's what he devoted his life to. But he put on a kind of air that he was a real tough guy. Charles Crabtree said, I'll help teach that class. <laughs> Charles just went in there and sat out as one of the teachers. Everything changed. Charles never had to say a word. Now, he did help with the teaching. But what Charles did was when they got up and they went out and they went in, Charles started kidding those boys. Well, you know, we've got a guy this big, this broad, muscular. They're looking at him. He started kidding them. Pretty soon he had a relationship with them. Pretty soon later in that week, the wild bunch was all formed around Charles when you went out to eat, when you went out to play. They were around Charles. They were talking to him. They admired him. He was their friend. Was there no woman that could have done that? There are women that have that talent that can break down those barriers of young men. Yes, there are. But I'm telling you, men, it's easier for you to do by your very presence because you're a man. You make a difference in terms of the discipline of children. You make a difference. Let me tell you, you don't have to be, as I think that example of Charles Crabtree shows, you don't have to be a religious fanatic to affect your children. My dad was a deacon. My mother taught Sunday school. They were at the First Baptist Church of Bluford, Illinois every time the doors were open. Didn't believe in youth ministry. You know, I, was, I tell people I was born in the middle of the last century. It makes me sound really old. And you didn't have youth ministry when I was born. You didn't have, well, you had a nursery, but a lot of people didn't bring their kids to it. They thought those kids ought to sit in church and get something. Listen, I'll tell you what, I never got a thing out of church unless the preacher told a joke. Until the Holy Spirit started dealing with me, but I had to go to Bible school. I escaped every time I could. I was something. I would have been one of those 10 or 12-year-old boys if it hadn't been for my mom and dad riding a, a, a motorcycle to uh, Bible school. I, I'll tell you what, I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be there. I went to the adult Bible studies. I dreaded the January Bible study. I dreaded the Bible study in the spring Bible study. I dreaded it. I had to sit there for a week and hear adults talk about something. I went every time the doors were open. So my mom and dad, and my dad was a great influence upon me, but I'm telling you, he was no religious fanatic. He didn't talk about the Bible all the time. He studied it. He taught it. But by his example, one of my earliest memories, and I have some really early memories, was probably when I was maybe three or four years old. And probably when this dawned on me and this poem began to work on me, I was probably four years old. My, my dad would come in the room of a night and he'd lay down with me and try to get me to sleep. I never have been able to go to sleep early. 
My mom and dad would put me in bed at eight o'clock. I would stand at the door and watch Dick Van Dyke. I would stand at the door. And then when they got up to come, I'd go get, you know, I'd be asleep. I would watch Dick Van Dyke. I would watch part of the 10 o'clock news. I would watch most of Johnny Carson, whatever they watched. And then I would do this when they came in and then they would hit the bed. They'd be asleep and snoring, both of them, in 10 minutes and I'd lay there till 12 o'clock. That's the way it's always been in my life. It's the way it's always been in my life. My dad, however, would come in and try to get me to sleep. My mother said, he tries to get you to sleep, but when I come in the room, he's asleep. You're still sitting in the bed playing. That was the, that was the deal. Let me tell you what my dad did. In his day in school, one of the things they had to do, and some of you may have gone to school during that time, you had to do memorization work. So my dad knew a lot of poems. One of the poems he quoted to me, which by the way is about a Muslim man. <laughs> it's a Muslim mystic cleric. Uh, it's from the middle of the eight, uh, 1800s. Uh, Lee Hunt is credited with it, but he didn't write it. It's a collection uh, from Muslim poetry. This guy is a mystic. But let me tell you something, you don't have to be a fanatic. My dad would quote me this poem. He wasn't even a saved man at the time. He quoted me this poem. This is it, Abu is the man's name. Abu bin Adin. Bin meaning son, Adin meaning Adam. Bu, Abu, son of man. He was a mystic, cleric, a Sufi, Muslim. Here's the poem. Abu bin Adin. May his tribe increase. Awoke one night from a deep dream of peace and saw within the moonlight in his room making it rich and like a lily in bloom an angel writing in a book of gold. Exceeding peace made ben Adim bold. And to the presence in the room he said, What writest thou? The vision raised its head and with a look made of all sweet accord, answered the names of those who love the Lord. And is mine one? Is mine one? said Abu. Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke more low, but cheerily still, and said, I pray thee then, Write me as one who loves his fellow men. The angel wrote and vanished. The next night it came again with a great wakening light and showed the names whom love of God had blessed. And lo, Ben Adim's name led all the rest. It's not how you get saved, but if you are saved, loving your fellow man is something God looks at. What did that poem say to me? At a young, young age, it said to me, there's a book. God writes names in the book. Your name can be there or not be there. There's a decision to be made. Oft times in my childhood, my dad would come and lay down in my bed in the hopes that I would go to sleep. And that and other poems he quoted. But that one, the Lord took hold of me. There's a decision to make. It makes a difference 
where your name is written. In my eighth year, Dad would quote that poem to me as he lay there in the bed, and I was under conviction. I knew what it took to be a Christian. I knew I had not done it. And I remember him saying that poem and me turning my back to him because I didn't want him to see me weep. I needed to be saved because I didn't want to surrender. <laughs> I didn't want to. Isn't it interesting how the slightest things you do, men, can have a profound effect upon your life. I didn't tell my dad that till I was probably in my late 50s. I told him how him quoting that poem had had such an effect on me. He taught me to tithe. He didn't say, now this is what the Bible says about tithing. This is what I want you to do. My dad was a wise guy. When I was probably starting the first grade, he gave me a 50 cent allowance. Now you say 50 cents, that cheapskate. My lands, folks, listen. Candy bars were a nickel and Cokes were still a nickel until about 1959. Cokes were a nickel. Do you realize what 50 cent meant to a, to a, to a, a first grader? Let me just tell you if you haven't figured it out, that's a Coke every day of the week, Monday through Friday, and that's a candy bar every day of the week. And I said to him, you mean I can do anything with this you want? Yes, that's your money. I can five candy bars. My mother, representing the government, stepped in and said, you're not buying five candy bars in a week. I didn't get five candy bars in a month. You're not gonna have five candy bars and no, you're not buying, you're not buying five Coca-Colas. I can just tell you that right now. Is the Earl? No. He said, you're not. And then my dad said, still hadn't brought up tithing, but I knew they tithed, I knew they wrote a check, I knew they, but he said, you're gonna give, listen to this, you're gonna give of that 50 cents a dime every week to church. You're gonna put it in your envelope, you're gonna check the envelope, you're gonna put on there, you gave 10 cents, you're gonna put it in. And I said, okay, that's great because that's four Cokes a week, and that's going to be four candy bars a week. You're not buying four Cokes a week. I'm telling you that right now. There are things that you want to do. And Dad said, no, you're not. Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to take also 10 cents, and you're going to put in your bank, and we're going to take that to the first, uh, to the first uh, uh, bank uh, in Wayne City, the Wayne City First National Bank, and you're going to start a savings account. Great. I still had three Cokes a week. And that, your mother said, no, you're not. You know when you go to Murphy's Five and Dime, there's always about a $2 toy you want. And some of them are more, gee whiz, folks, you could buy a Tonka metal truck for about $3.50 in that day, and you're going to save your money, and you can do that. Okay, so I'm not going to have a lot of Cokes, but I've got a lot of money. You see what he did? A tithe is 10%. He never even brought the Bible into it. He had me given 20%. I didn't figure that out. I didn't figure out till sometimes a couple years later, he raised my allowance to $1 a week and said, you got to give 20 cents. Now there, I had gotten a little further into math and I had given 20 cents for a little while and I began to figure out, wait a minute, he's got me given 20 cents and I brought that up to him. Tithing is only 10%. You've had me given 20% all this time. He said, has it hurt you? 
I said, no. He said, your mother and I tithe, and we give a little more than that in terms of some things we do. And I'll tell you, God has blessed us, and I believe God will bless you. Let me tell you something. That man was right by his example, sneaky though he was. He was right by his example, and I have found all my life that God can take the 80% and the 90% and make it go further than if you had 100%. Why? Because you're tithing. And he taught me what the reason for that was, that everything you get ultimately comes from God. And that includes the labor that your mother and I are doing. It comes from God. You don't have to be a religious fanatic to teach your children the precepts of God. You just have to rely upon His wisdom and by your own example. I suppose in the Scripture, one of the most precious, one of the most profound images we have of God as Father is this story that Jesus told about the two boys. It's really about the two boys. It's not just the prodigal son. In Luke, the 15th chapter, you know the story. It's played out in Glasgow many times. It's played out in your family. You may have been one of those two boys. Most likely, we identify most with the prodigal. Two boys, farm boys, raised on the farm. One boy was always rebellious, I imagine. He was always rebellious. His whole idea was, Dad's just keeping me down. I can be a great man. I'm not going to live on this two-bit farm raising sheep and doing what I'm doing. This is crazy. I've got great dreams. I can go somewhere. My dad's got all these religious ideas of things we can do and can't do and places we can't go and how we got to dress and all of that. I'm telling you what, all in the world that is, is a bunch of garbage that came from what? My grandfather and further back than that, all the way back, all the way back, 700, 800 years back. Somebody, a shepherd somewhere has been telling us that he got a message from God and we've been trying to live for it. I don't see anything. Look what's going on down at the temple. Look at the business they've made out of that. He says to his God, to his dad, he finally says to his dad, listen, you just give me what is coming to me, which will have been a third of his dad's wealth and as his inheritance. And he said, I'm leaving. He takes the third of his inheritance, which he was never going to get back, by the way, even though he returned. He took a third of his inheritance. He went off into a far country, and you know the story, in riotous living and one thing and another, and he loses, loses his way. Let me just tell you, the second boy, he was about as lost as the first. That second boy did everything his dad asked him to do. That second boy had worked and worked and worked and did what his father had told him to do. And I'm sure in, in the process of time, he saw a lot of favoritism given to that boy, hoping he'd change. He just hung right in there and worked. Let me tell you something about both these guys. Neither one of them really knew their father. Neither one of them actually understood their dad's heart. They knew what he taught them. Now the good son, he's like a lot of religious people. He thought by keeping the rules and doing the right thing that God was keeping score and if he got a high enough score, he was gonna make it to heaven. It's a transactional God and that's the way a lot of people come to church. 
Well, I go to church this often, but I'm not doing that. Well, I don't do this, I don't do that. It's a transactional God. If I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. That's, that's the message that a lot of us have in terms of religion, but we don't understand God's heart. Of course, the prodigal son, the one who was rebellious, he didn't get it at all. He thought God was trying to oppress him. His son, he thought his son was trying to oppress him. Sorry, he thought his father was trying to oppress him, trying to hold him back. Same temptation that Satan used in the Garden of Eden when he spoke to Eve and said, the only reason he's doing this is you're going to be like God if you'll eat this fruit. You'll know good and evil. He don't want you to know that. And that's the way that son saw his father, and that's the way a lot of people see God. Talk to him in Glasgow just a bunch of rules it's just to keep people in line it's just that I can do it on my own so the boy takes his money he goes down to a foreign land loses it all loses his friends he's feeding hogs and then the moment came for this boy that we're not sure the son at home ever got it but the boy that went away the Bible says he came to himself And he realized, yes, his dad wasn't as dumb as he thought he was. And yes, his dad was right, but that wasn't the point. He realized who he was. And basically he said, I'm not even worthy to go back and be a hired hand of my dad's, but I believe if I'll go back, he might take me back. And so he starts back. Here's the beautiful picture that Jesus presents. Say a few things about this guy. I don't know how much he knew about what was going on. Didn't have text, didn't have Twitter, didn't have a lot of things, not long distance, but the word got around. He probably knew something about what was happening to that boy down there. Do you think he went and bailed him out? He did not bail him out. That's the mistake we make sometimes. We just continue the process by bailing somebody out all the time. He'd have never come to himself if he'd not have wound up in that hog pen. That dad didn't bail him out. But he was looking down that road when that boy came. Now, do you think that happened just by happenstance? I'm telling you that that wasn't the only time that that dad had stand and stood and looked for that child to come home. He'd sat on that front porch and looked many a time. And finally, he saw that familiar gate. He saw that boy returning. He didn't know if he was going to repent. He didn't know what was going to happen. He just knew that his boy that was lost was found. And he ran and he embraces him, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the boy said, I've done wrong, Lord. I, Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against everything. I just want to come back and be your hired hand. And what does the dad say to him? Go get the best robe we have. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son that was lost has come back home. That's the first time that child saw his dad's real heart and why his discipline had been what it had been in his life. And he realized not just the penalty of his rebelliousness, but he realized what it was to be saved, to be claimed. And then you know the story. I'm not going to read it to you. Time has failed us. You know the story. The son comes up out of the field and says, what in the world's going on here? He says, well, 
your brother that's lost has come back and he said, man, you didn't even give me a goat to have a party with my friends, not one. And I've done everything you asked me to do. Isn't that what religious people do? They think if they've done and they've done and they've done for God, they're going to make it to heaven. And this guy who took, took a third of your money and went down there and squandered it on prostitutes and loose living comes back to you, disgraced our family, comes back to you, and you welcome him back like that. That's religion for you. A God who's transactional. I don't know, even though in front of his eyes, that child could see the heart of his father, I don't know if he had that heart. But Jesus' point in telling the story was, God wants to redeem us from an unredeemable situation. Notice he didn't write the child a check. Notice he didn't say to him, that's all right, you can have, still have a third when I die. He lost that third. The consequences of his sin was there. He had lost it. He wasn't going to get it back. But he could. His father gave him lambs. He could have his own herd. He could live a prosperous life. But he wasn't going to have the inheritance. And what does that say about our salvation? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What does God want to do this morning? Put more religion in your life? No. Limit your life so that you're limited? No. He wants to give you eternal life. Eternal life. Can you pay him for it? Oh, once you have it, you can certainly live a life of worship and gratitude to him, but not live of his slave or his hard hand. He wants to give you eternal life to celebrate you coming to him. You may be here this morning. Maybe you're listening on the internet and you realize that what you need more than anything else is to have a loving relationship with your father. That's what Christianity is. It's a meaningful, loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's possible because he paid the price so that we could have fellowship with God. He paid the price for our sin. What we have to do is realize that we're sinners. Realize there's a decision to be made. Realize that there is worship of the Father to give. Realize that I need to come to Him and say I failed. But I believe you died for my failure. You died for my sin. I believe you're my Lord and Savior and I want to make the decision to receive you as Lord and Savior of my life. He says he'll come in. He says his Holy Spirit will come into your heart. You'll be born again. Let's stand and sing. And you come this morning.